This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in Melbourne's CBD. Today's big question, does the Bible really work? To help us think about this, we have Tim Curtis join us. Tim is the Senior Associate Minister of Unichurch at St Jude's Anglican Church in Carlton. Tim is originally from the UK, but married a Melbourne girl and moved to Melbourne in 2012. He worked as an architect before training as a church pastor. Please welcome Tim Curtis. Tim, we're here to talk about the Bible today. Now, people might think that this conversation could be a cure for insomnia. To many, the Bible just seems boring and irrelevant uh, to life in modern Australia. But you disagree? Oh, look, I understand uh, why people might feel like that about the Bible. I think for about 20 years of my life, that's how I felt about the Bible. I think that what changed my opinion of the Bible is that I started to read it. Right. <laughs> and uh, when I was about 20, I started to read it for myself, not because anyone else told me to. And it's definitely fair to say that no other book, in fact, no other person has had a big an impact on my life as the Bible has. And we'll talk about why later. We're going to see if the Bible could work here in a modern city because it seems quite common to believe that it doesn't work. Uh, to many, the Bible is like a failed invention. It promises a lot, but doesn't deliver. Now, would you say that there were people who think that, Tim? I mean, in your first 20 years of your life, did you think that the Bible was a failed invention that promised a lot, just didn't deliver? Well, I, yes. I don't think I was even aware that it promised a lot. I think a negative view of the Bible is quite prevalent in modern Australia. I'm a chaplain at Melbourne Uni, and I think most of the students there, I think there's quite a lot of underlying hostility to the Bible. Mm. My experience is that telling someone that I trust the Bible, that it's I think that it's a good, powerful and life-giving book from God is almost the quickest way to be discredited as a human being right. in modern Australia. Certainly Although, in... I'm not sure if you ever handed out flyers at a station, railway station. That's yeah. one way of being discredited <laughs> as a human. Now, as part of Bigger Questions, we also like to ask some smaller questions. And today we're talking with Tim Curtis about if the Bible really works. So, Tim, in today's quiz, I thought we'd test you on failed inventions, things that seemed like a good idea but just didn't work. Uh, two questions, both multiple choice. Question one, what failed invention was patented by a Robert Martin in 1921? It's true. Was it A, an alarm clock that wakes the sleeper with a blow to the forehead from a pivoting antenna released by the clock mechanism? Was it B, a stove under the driver's seat in a car heated by channeling the exhaust pipe underneath the vehicle chassis? Was it C, a combined rocking chair and bath, combining the comfort of a chair with the benefits of a bath? Or was it D, the design for a car with a collapsible roof and windscreen, which meant it could be stored vertically to take up less space? Now, these were all patented inventions, but only one was patented by Robert Martin. Was he a, a relation? gifted and ingenious inventor, I'm sure. Was he a relation of yours, Rob? No, I, I don't believe oh, I'm so. Gonna go for I don't believe I'm going to go for D. I like D, the yeah. vertical car thing. Well, it was car related, but it was actually B, oh, sure. uh, the stove oh. under the driver's seat. I mean, that's obviously a practical uh, invention. Yeah. Um, do you think they're good ideas? Uh, no. <laughs> you don't think st you're having well, a stove underneath your no. powered by I think I could cope with it. I don't think my wife would cope with it. <laughs> Hopefully you can, get, you can pass with question two. Question two. Which of the following failed inventions was invented in 1931? 
Was it A, the portable record player, an opportunity to play your vinyl records on the go? Was it B, a new flavour, Honiger, a combination of honey and apple cider vinegar? Was it C, an alarm bed that tips the bed up to a 45 degree angle when it is time for the sleeper to get up? Yeah. Or is it D, an umbrella cigarette holder to help keep the rain off your cigarette? <laughs> What, hang on, what was the first one, Rob? The first one was the portable record player. No. So is it the portable <laughs> so, record player? Uh, no, no, I'll help you out. It's not the portable record player. Okay. So the answer... I'm going to go for B, Honiger. Or you could maybe try one of the other ones. Just so, so you don't pass. So that you do actually pass. Maybe you could try... Go D? Yes, correct. Yes, it's the umbrella correct. cigarette holder to help keep the rain off your cigarette. So why do you think these ideas all failed? I have no idea why an umbrella cigarette holder failed. I mean, it's baffling. Yeah, it, it does seem a bit baffling. I've often it? wanted one. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Tim and I failed inventions quiz. You nearly got one out of two rights. I mean, round of applause for Tim. For Thank you. Thanks, Rob. <clears throat> now, these failed inventions didn't work. They were all impractical. Yet it didn't matter a great deal to the world if they didn't work. I mean, Honiger might not taste great, but at least they had a go. Uh, yet the Bible makes much greater claims, doesn't it? Uh, so for it to be an impractical and unlivable system has much greater implications, wouldn't you say? Oh, look, yeah, it does. The Bible is a book that's uh, read and listened to very carefully and given a very prominent position in many people's lives. Um, it does beg the question, if it's... Uh, impractical and unlivable, why so many people are willing to ha give it that position in their lives. Yeah, I suppose it's because there's not many people who walk around with um, umbrella cigarette holders. No, for there example. aren't. The, the, Despite lots of marketers. Right. Or potential, Lots of potential, at least. And yet, and, and yet the, the, the prevalence of the Bible suggests that lots of people's experience is that it does work. It does actually work. Yeah. Mm. Now, I've seen a number of atheists claim that they will not live by a book written by a bunch of Bronze Age primitive goat herders. How do you respond to this? I think, I wonder if they've ever met a Bronze Age primitive goat herder. <laughs> I'm sure they're very nice. <laughs> um, I think what's going on But I think the point is, though, that why should I live by a book that's yeah, written by uneducated people who lived a long time ago? Look, uh, I think there's a little bit of chronological snobbery and a little bit of ignorance about who the Bible writers were going on there. What do you mean by chronological snobbery? Uh, just an assumption that because uh, someone lived two or two and a half thousand years ago, that they are intellectually inferior to me. Mm. Well, uh, they have I have nothing to say to me today. Yeah, and I think that's a bit rude. Mm. Over my lifetime, I've had to read lots and lots of books. And the Bible is by far the cleverest book I've ever read, by miles. Yeah. It's brilliant. Look, I, in some ways, we don't have time to go into the details of that now. But one of the things I'd say is that there are books of the Bible that are written by shepherds. Mm -hmm. They're wonderful books. But there are also books in the Bible that are written by kings and doctors and businessmen and politicians and courtiers. That they weren't foolish and unsophisticated people. And it's very clear as you read the Bible that it wasn't written by ignorant and unsophisticated people. It's written by intelligent people. And one of the wonderful things about the Bible is it rewards intelligent, questioning, thinking about it. There's all kinds of reasons why I'm persuaded it's a Bible that ultimately has a divine author behind it. Look, if that's the case, it is therefore 
a unique gift to the world. It's and it gives us access to the divine, and it puts it in a different category to every other book in the world. If it doesn't have God's fingerprints on it, it may have some use as wisdom in our lives, but I would not give it the position I give it in my life if it's not ultimately authored by God. Now, but part of the thinking about this depends on what role the Bible is meant to play. So what is the Bible meant to do then? There's lots of things that the Bible offers to the world, but right at the heart of what it's meant to do is it's meant to show us God. God is an invisible God who exists outside of time and space. And that just presents some logistical problems about you know, how we know God, how mm. we see him. And the Bible is God's gift to the world that provides a way of God speaking to us and a way of us knowing him. Mm. And that's so right at its heart, that's what Zame is. Even before it's about governing our lives or teaching us how to live, it's about showing us who God is. In other words, it's a book that has at its heart, it's all about a relationship. As part of Bigger Questions, we also reflect on the Bible, and we'll look at a couple of parts right now to see if it really does work. The first section we'll look at is in the Gospel of John, one of the four biographies of Jesus' life that we have. In chapter 14, Jesus is speaking with his disciples about how they know God. In John 14.8, Philip, one of Jesus' followers and friends, said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. So Tim, what is Philip asking here? Philip's asking a wonderful question. It's a sort of childlike question in some ways. He's saying, Jesus, um, we want to see God. You know, can you show him to us, please? Yeah. Um, Is that a reasonable question? He gets told off a bit by Jesus for asking it, and we'll see why in a minute. But on one level, it's much more than a reasonable question. It's the most wonderful, important question I think anyone could ever ask. You know, if God's real and he can be known and we can see him, I want to see him. I want to know him. Mm. And so if that's a possibility, I think asking the question, come on, Jesus, show me God, is a good question to ask. Mm. But perhaps more remarkable is Jesus' response in verse 9. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What do you make of this, Tim? I just... (laughs) It's an astonishing thing for a human being to say. Anyone who's seen me has seen God. Look, in terms of kind of arrogance, egocentricity, it's an unbelievable thing to say. Hey, look, do you want to see God? He doesn't say, look at me and I'm like God. He says, look at me and you, you see God, you see the Father. And if Jesus really said this, I think C.S. Lewis's point is, is proved true. What's C.S. Lewis's point? C.S. Lewis's point is that as you actually listen carefully to the things that Jesus said and, and, and what he taught, he's either mad or he's evil or he's God. Mad, bad or God is the way he put it. And anyone kind of standing up and saying, hey everyone, look at me, I'm God, is either an absolute lunatic or there's something, they're really twisted and evil and want to manipulate people. Mm. Or, terrifyingly, they're God. The option that they can't be is just a sort of nice, cheerful man who wanted to help people. You can't have that option. You can't have that option if Jesus really said things like this. Mm. So then it goes on and says, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. So what's Jesus' point here? 
Jesus makes an interesting point here. So um, Philip has, has said, look, show us God. We want to see him. And Jesus replies to say, look, okay, look at me and you'll see God. But he adds a bit of detail to his answer. He says, how is it that you can see God in Jesus? And he says that Jesus shows people God's through the words that he speaks. Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. And I think what he means there is the Father is doing his work of showing himself to the world. How does he do it? He does it through the words that he speaks to the world through Jesus. And look, that's a a glorious promise. Because what it means is, Again, this business of knowing and seeing God suddenly becomes gloriously accessible because Jesus' words are accessible to us now. Mm. And it's a promise that through Jesus' words, through the Christian gospel, human beings can have this extraordinary experience that we can see God. This is the window to know him. This is the window to see him through the words of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful promise. But how do we know that Jesus is telling the truth? Well, he anticipates that question, uh, and so he says in the next verse, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. And I think what Jesus means when he says, believe on the evidence of the works themselves, he's saying, look, look how powerful my words have been. So this is from John 14. If you go back three chapters in John's Gospel, John 11, there's that amazing moment uh, when you see how powerful Jesus' words are. It's my earliest childhood memory Mm -hmm. is of seeing Franco Zeffirelli's movie of John 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And I remember seeing it on the TV. And Jesus, it's a brilliant cinematic moment. Jesus just says three words. Lazarus, come out. To a man who's four days dead in a tomb, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out of the grave dressed, wrapped up in his grave clothes. And Jesus is saying, look, look what my words can do. Mm. What more evidence do you need that I'm not just speaking my own words, I speak the very words of God. So how did you react to that as a child? I think I was about three or four. <laughs> I didn't really it was just, I think, astonishment. Here's a man being raised from the dead. It's very beautifully filmed as well. Mm. So. But in what sense, though, do you see God? I mean, you read the words about Jesus on a page. Aren't you just reading words? Look, if you ever talk to a Christian who really knows God, they'll explain to you that the impact the Bible has on us is way beyond the impact of mere words. That this promise that Jesus makes, that through his words we can see God, we can actually kind of know God or encounter him in a personal way through his words in the scriptures, is really true. Um, And that's certainly been in my experience for many years. So yes, you are reading words on a page, but they're not any old words, they're God's words. And my experience is that they therefore impact your heart, your life, your mind, far more powerfully than normal words could ever do. And I think that's part of the evidence. They're not just normal words. Mm. Well, maybe you could share a bit about how that is true in your life experience. Do you wanna share your experience of it? Yeah, so I'm unusually, I became a Christian without really meeting any other Christians. Uh, There were two things that happened. The first was I had a a powerful answer to prayer in a moment of need. And God showed me very clearly he was real. 
And on the basis of that, I thought, well, I should find out more about God. He obviously cares about me. And so I just went to W.H. Smith Bookshop in Cambridge. I bought a Bible. I started to read John's Gospel. And it's not that long a book, what, 20, 30 pages. By the time I'd finished reading it, I was convinced that Jesus was God. I was astonished by him, and in particular by his authority. And look, my wife will tell you that I'm not someone who changes their mind easily. I have an astonishing <laughs> ability to sort of always think I'm right. <laughs> And yet, somehow, somehow the Bible, literally just by reading through John's Gospel, I was convinced suddenly I, meet, I was seeing God in Jesus Christ and that this was the person around whom I needed to orientate my life. Mm. And it had an extraordinary life-changing impact on me. Mm. And the Bible did that on its own. Without... Any, I didn't meet any I'm trying Christians. to persuade you or any... No. So the Bible is many ways to try to help us to understand or to meet God. Uh, we might get to know God through the Bible, but modern critics of Christianity claim that he's an unpleasant character. Uh, he's not worth getting to know. And even if you do get to know this God, it'll make you an unpleasant person where you suppress and oppress human flourishing. What are your thoughts to that? So there are two points to your question. The first point is that actually the God who we get to know in the Bible is really nasty and not nice. And I think there's a certain irony that you know, those who are saying that are not people who know God. In a personal way. Yeah, there's people saying that your God that you know is nasty and unkind. And my response would be to say, how do you know? Do you know him? Have you met him? And I think there's a certain irony to saying, look, the God that I've never met and I don't know and I don't believe in isn't very nice. And yet my experience is that talking to people who do know God, who have encountered God in the way that Jesus describes here, through Jesus' words, they've seen him, that the God that they have come to know is astonishing and infinitely kind and gentle and patient and faithful and good and generous in a way that no other person I have ever met has even come close to being. And so I wonder that uh, Jesus says wisdom is proved true by her children. And I think his point in that was saying, look, it's very easy to criticize something from the outside. It's much harder to criticize someone or something once you've really tried it or once you've really got to know that person. My encouragement to Richard Dawkins, whoever it might be, said that, would be come and know God first and then decide whether he's good. Mm, mm. Now, obviously, part of your experience has been that you have experienced an emotional and transforming experience by coming to know this God. Uh, and part of the Bible where we may see the emotional and transforming experience of encountering God is found in Psalm 63. The Psalms are in the Old Testament part of the Bible, and they're like the songbook of the Bible. Uh, so, Tim, are you going to sing this psalm for us today? Do you know what I could do? I went to a, a school from the age of about 7 till 11 sure. where we sang metrical psalms every morning in chapel. Right. It was a very unhappy experience <laughs> yeah, right. for everyone involved, well, so I'm be, not going to sing it to you. It won't be, that won't be a happy experience for no, our audience here. No, right. it wouldn't. Um, so Psalm 63, so what strikes you in this psalm? There's lots of things that strike me about Psalm 63, but one of the things that I love about it is the raw, powerful, emotional content of the psalm. And I think you see it just in the first verse there. 
The psalmist writes, you God are my God, earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. And what you're seeing very clearly here is that Christian experience is not knowing about God, that Christian experience is knowing God. He's writing about a real experience of really knowing God. I think if we didn't know this was about God, we'd assume that this was a sort of romantic love poem written to a lover. Mm. And yet it's not, it's about God. That's right, they have a real passion and desire for God. Um, God seems like something he needs, like water in a desert. Now, you're from England, so probably don't understand what that's like, uh, what it means to Rob. lack water. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Uh, so what does what, what Rob, God... that was quite an ethnocentric comment, <laughs> I thought. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so what does God have that the psalmist desires? Look, that's hard to summarise as you read through the psalm. Uh, one of the ways you could summarise uh, what does God have that the psalmist desires and enjoys uh, God seems to offer him a sublime experience of love. And so he says in uh, verses 2, 3, and 4, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. And again, is it, there's this language of seeing God appearing. And I don't think it, that he literally had a vision of God. He's saying somehow as he encounters God through his words, the experience is so powerful, it is as if he's seeing God and the experience that the God that he sees is clearly transcendent. He's clearly very different from anything else that he's ever seen. I saw your power and your glory. And the other characteristic that he sees of God is God's love. And it's clearly overwhelming for him to see and know God's love because your love is better than life. And look, his response seems to be instantaneous, spontaneous praise. He can't help but sing or shout or speak about how wonderful God is. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you met someone so beautiful, so perfect, that you couldn't help but open your mouth and praise them and tell the world about how amazing they are? It does happen, but not very often. And here's the psalmist saying, that's what it's like to see God. It also says there in verse four that they lift up their hands. Now, there's lots of Christians who don't seem so enthusiastic to believers. They don't lift their hands up in church or sing without any passion. Do yeah. you ever lift up your hands? I went, definitely went through a lifting up of my hands stage. Right. I think most Christians do. But the trouble is, I'm English. And we're, <laughs> we're by nature quite restrained. And so I, I lift up my hands less. However, I think there are other ways or other genuine marks uh, of a, a powerful, emotional, real loving commitment to someone. Lifting up your hands and uh, could be one of them, but there are other ways of doing it mm. as well. I think a life of devotion and faithfulness is in some ways a much more powerful statement of, of a genuine love for God than lifting up your hands. Mm. So what do you make then of verse five? I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing lips my mouth will praise you. Look, I, I, I think the psalmist again is talking about a sublime experience of satisfaction that comes through knowing God. It's compared there with the richest of foods. So what would be, uh, I mean, 
would you describe it as like a curry in a lager, perhaps? <laughs> sorry, maybe all these English stereotypes. I think that, or bang, I think that was another ethnocentric <laughs> comment. <laughs> sorry. Uh, look, uh, so you're saying, which food would I compare knowing God to? <laughs> yeah. well, it says, it's it, hard, That's what the psalmist it? says. Yes. No. Are we fully satisfied as with the richest of foods? So it's Not, like a Yorkshire pudding. You know. Do you know what? My favourite <laughs> food is lobster, but somehow saying... Knowing God's like eating a lobster, it doesn't doesn't work. There's a famous essay written by a man called Jonathan Edwards, and he makes a comparison between knowing God and eating honey. And he says, uh, that's what knowing God is like. It's like knowing the sweetness of honey. So I'll I'll stick to that comparison, Rob. Is that okay? Mm. A couple of questions have come in, which I might just feed in. Um, Is the Bible the only book that God supposedly authored? Why doesn't God continue to write throughout the ages? I think the Bible is the only book that God has authored. And the Bible's position is that he has done enough. Its great purpose is for us to know God. And what God has done and recorded in the scriptures is sufficient words from him, sufficient, to give it, to use the Christian jargon, sufficient revelation from him for us to know him. And also sufficient revelation from him for us to be rescued by him to come into a relationship with him to have our sins uh, forgiven do you feel satisfied in God as with the richest of foods I don't want to paint a rosier picture of the Christian life Uh, my experience of life is that uh, being a Christian involves challenges and suffering and difficulty just like everyone else But the extraordinary difference about being a Christian and knowing God through his words is in the midst of the storms and the sorrows and the difficulties of life. It's like you have a rock in the middle. And so I give myself to the business of knowing God. I give a good amount of time to it almost every day. And in that time, I find very, very sweet pleasures and delights. I find extraordinary comforts in suffering and trouble. I find that there is a person to be known there, a real experience of knowing a person that is full of delight and joy and comfort, that is a a far greater than any relational experiences I've ever known with anyone else. And what's so wonderful is it's unchanging. You know, it doesn't, God doesn't go away. And he's there to be known through his word every day at any time. Now, that's not to say that your, your experience of knowing God is unaffected by, you know, what's going on in your life day to day. You know, there are days when, you know, the, my, my devotional time of knowing God is less joyful than others. But it's as if there's this kind of, you know, this wonderful, solid rock at the center of your life, this person whom you know who comforts and keeps you. And that is unchanging. And that is a very, very precious thing to have in life. Hmm. So Tim, does the Bible really work? Yeah, absolutely. If its main purpose is for human beings to know God, absolutely it works. And I imagine that there'd be lots of people in this room who would say the same thing is true in your life. Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question, does the Bible really work? From Psalm 63, 5. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. I look forward to you joining us next time for bigger questions. Please thank our guest today, Tim Curtis.